Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession as it is our statement of faith. And we are considering the doctrines of our faith, in particular the first doctrine that is covered, or for, I should say, let's say maybe the first macro doctrine uh, is the scriptures. And the reason I say it that way, uh, macro versus micro, is because the big doctrine is the scriptures. But there's a lot of smaller doctrines within the scripture that we've already covered some, like the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is enough, and that there's no additional revelation needed, you know, that is also a doctrine, right? So that's the sufficiency of Scripture. Kind of like when you talk about the doctrine of God, right, that there is a God and who he is, then there are other doctrines under that, like his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, his omniscience, that he is all-knowing. Those are also doctrines, right? But they're part of that bigger doctrine, that macro doctrine. If it, I'm not, I don't want to start coining that as a thing. Anyway, that bigger picture doctrine of uh, God. So when we talk about the scriptures, uh, there are a lot of smaller uh, kind of doctrines that make up this larger doctrine of the scripture. And that's where we're uh, actually going today is into a new one. And that is its availability. Now, you can see it's a fairly big paragraph. Hopefully you had a chance to do this as homework, to uh, read it and then go through the uh, various footnotes. Um, well, I don't want to. As soon as I start talking more, I'll steal thunder. So let's just work our way through the slides, and I'll supplement as we go. All right. So first of all, let's read it. Paragraph eight: The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. All right, so a lot of words, but a big issue. So obviously you can see just from this that the main thing this is talking about is that the scriptures were originally written in these languages and they should be translated so that people could understand them, right? Now, let's just see. Okay, <laughs> you know, I start talking, then it's on the next slide, and I said it better on the slide, so I don't, all right, so uh, let's keep in mind, you know, as always, when we're looking at the way that they worded things, or how they did it, maybe sometimes how they even broke it up, it does help us to understand the times that they wrote the 1689 in, right? So the 1689 is written at a time when the Roman Catholic Church is still only allowing the scriptures to be in Latin. They're written in Latin. They're spoken in Latin. You are too low to read the scriptures or understand the scriptures in the view of the Roman Catholic Church. They are the only ones who know how to interpret it. They are the only ones who should read it. So this is obviously contradicting that, right? Not written specifically against that, but there had been centuries, literally, of men in Europe, and particularly in England, 
who were trying to translate the Word of God or did translate the Word of God into the vulgar language. Now, what is the vulgar language? The vulgar language is what you speak. Right? It's the language that's common to the people. Right? It's, it's not necessarily the proper or our highest level of language. That's what it, it's not an insult. It doesn't, you know, we think of vulgar language like swearing or something like this, right? But that's not what it meant then. It meant the common language. So their point is, is that this is necessary. All these men who've gone before, some have been burned at the stake for it. All of their Bibles gathered and burned. In England, this is wrong. What's right is that everyone should have access to the Word of God. And they even go further to say why they should have access to the Word of God. But let's, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves by starting at the end. We'll start at the beginning. All right. So, first of all, as we consider its availability, and we have to talk about its preservation. That's what we're going to talk about. And that brings us to the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. So what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. I put it right here on the slide for you. Verbal means that it extends to the actual words. In other words, the belief that God breathed the actual words that the writers used. God specified every single word. Plenary, every word into all parts, complete. In other words, God is part of every word and every part of the original writing. So the original writings, the ones that were written the first time, the autograph, now I've used that term before, let me say it again, the autograph is what the original writing is, right? So you could picture Matthew writing the Gospel of Matthew. His original copy is called the autograph. Does that make sense? Now, for instance, the Declaration of Independence in the National Archives. That original copy is considered the autograph. It has nothing to do with the fact that people autographed it. <laughs> but it's the first original copy, right? So it's considered the autograph. So what this, is, this doctrine is saying is, is that in that original writing, that original autograph, every single word was inspired by God. Every single word. This denies, this is denied by the conceptual or the dynamic view of inspiration. So we're going to talk about what that is, the conceptual or the dynamic view. But let me just say this as an introduction to this. This is why this is so important. The word of God has become corrupt. It's become corrupt. There's no other way to say this. It's, it's corrupt. How it's become corrupt is by men changing words. So look, if, if every single word, verbal, plenary, inspiration, if every single word in the scriptures was from God, how can we change one word? We can't. Now, we see lots of examples in the New Testament of arguments, and we'll talk about two specifically, arguments based on the specific, very specific words of the Scripture. And we do remember Christ's words. Are you come to destroy the Scriptures? No, I'm here to fulfill the Scriptures. Until all heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall in any ways pass away. A jot and tittle is punctuation. Christ was actually making the statement that not one bit of punctuation will pass away from the Scripture. You think it matters what words are used? If it matters what punctuation is used, of course it does. But the scriptures have become corrupted. Why? Look, 
if God's word is intended for us to be known through his, through his revelation, and you want to thwart his plans for us to know his word, what do you do? You mess with the words. You mess with the record. We talked about this last week. What, is, what, what was Satan's initial attempt at temptation? Successful attempt. As far as we know. Right? Did Satan talk to Eve a couple times before that? Did he talk to Adam? We don't know that. But we do know is, the one that Scripture tells us where she succumbed to that temptation was him starting by saying, Hath God said? He questioned God's word then. This has never stopped. So as we work our way through this entire paragraph on its availability, we talk about translations. You need to understand, Satan's desire is for it to be corrupt. His desire is for you to have less than the complete revelation of God. That's his desire. And unfortunately, man has played into this all too well. Now you'll hear all kinds of reasons. Well, people can't understand it the way it's... Have you heard that? Anybody? Pretty much you hear that continuously. We need something that can speak to people today. Have you heard that? Yeah. Here's the problem. They changed the meaning. They've changed the meaning. There's lots of things to consider regarding this issue. We're going to work our way through them. But I want you to keep these big thoughts in mind as we work our way through this. It is not hard to see with just paying attention the specific work of Satan attempting to thwart God's revelation. We're going to see it. And it's prevalent today. And so as you begin to work your way through this idea that the scriptures can be changed and the scriptures can be modified and the scriptures are not set or fixed, you start down the rabbit hole into the abyss of relativistic religion. Hath God said? Did he really mean that? Or is that what somebody wanted us to believe? This is the questions. These are the questions. So the conceptual or dynamic view of inspiration is contrary to the verbal plenary inspiration. Here's what they say. Well, they contend that God's revelation in Scripture is limited to the doctrines and concepts, but not the actual words. They contend that God's revelation in Scripture is limited to the doctrines and the concepts, not the actual words. Now, I mean, can we be honest for a second? Right off the bat, if you're being open-minded, you might say, huh, well, hmm. Because that has some, you, you can hear that and think, well, that, that, maybe that's true. I, I don't know. They believe only the ideas or doctrines are necessary. Only the ideas or doctrines are necessary for us. That we are responsible for what the Bible intends to teach, not the words actually used in it. In other words, if the Bible wants to teach you that you should honor and worship God, that that's what you should do. It doesn't really matter 
how the Bible says for you to do that. Now, do we see any evidence in Scripture that that's completely false? Really big evidence in Scripture. Remember the little incident in the Old Testament with strange fire or unknown incense? Two men struck down dead because they introduced incense into worship that God did not command them to use. We actually talk about that in the regular principle of worship. Do you think it mattered to God? <laughs> Enough that he struck them dead on the spot. Mattered. This ignores that. No, it's just the concepts. Now, of course, you understand the difficulty right away off this. There's another doctrine that this is denying. Not in the scriptures. It's the depravity of man. We believe that. We embrace that doctrine. What is that doctrine? Anybody? Really succinct? What's that doctrine? We're all depraved. What's that mean that we're depraved? You're right. What's that mean that we're depraved? Sinful. That's right. How sinful? Totally. Completely. Yeah, that's it. Total depravity of man. That's it. We're all totally sinful. So, can you see a problem with us taking the scripture and getting, the correct, getting it correct without acknowledging the actual words. In other words, if you were to reinterpret the Scripture to convey what you believe it means, do you think you would do a perfect job? Or do you think that the total depravity of man would influence you? It would, wouldn't it? It makes the scriptures completely subjective to our personal and fallen opinions. That's the issue. That's the issue. And if you don't, if you say, well, all right, you know, sometimes Brian drives me crazy because he's talking about abstract things. <laughs> okay, maybe that's true. I don't know if one's ever said that, but maybe that's true. Not to my face, I heard it behind him. Anyway, no. It, this is totally relevant. This is totally relevant. You face this all the time. And here's what it is. You face it yourself. You deal it with yourself. Not even considering somebody who works for Zondervan or works for Thomas Nelson or some Bible publisher who's working on a translation, which happens, by the way. Not because of that. Because you see something in Scripture and you don't like it and you want to think it means something different. Now this is true for churches all over the place. Is it possible that God has no problem with an elder in a church being a homosexual? I mean, if you know God's word, you know that's not even possible. There's no way. There's only a handful of things that God says he hates, and that's one of them. No way. How about, does God have any problem with a woman being an elder? Is there any scripture that evidences male leadership in the church? Yeah, there is. And yet, churches have female pastors and homosexual pastors. Why? That doesn't mean what it says. That's why. Because they're taking this approach. Can you see how when you take this approach, it becomes very dangerous for you actually to know how God intends us to live? And pretty much it makes it subjective to your own whims. You like it, you go with it. You don't like it, that's not what he meant. 
we're going to extend grace over that and just accept that sin. Should we accept sin? We should not accept sin. Do we necessarily condemn someone to hell for sin? No, God will do that. We don't need to. What we need to do is love on them, share God's gospel with them, right? And then when they become Christians, they're perfect. Then we have to extend more grace. Because now they're, not a, they're, not, they're no longer controlled by their sinful, dead heart. It's the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in them that should control them. But they still have that sin, of, that heart of flesh, don't they? They do. There are scriptural examples of the Holy Spirit giving the actual words to the writers. So let me read a couple of them. Matthew 5, 18 and 19. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of the least, these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, and shall be same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Christ's words that I mentioned already. Jeremiah 1.9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. God warned, I better stay over here. God warned about tampering with the words of Scripture. Deuteronomy 12, 28 and 32, observe and hear all the words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee. And with thy children after thee forever, when thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereunto, nor diminish from it. God is saying, look, you can't do what I said. Don't add to it. Don't diminish from it. Just do what I said. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That's certainly powerful. There are arguments I've mentioned in the scripture about a single word or a single letter. They are referenced in some passages. Let's look at two of them. Galatians, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, verses 42 to 45. This is Christ saying, I'm sorry. This is Christ and the apostles. So Christ, first they talk and then he speaks. Saying, what, kind, what, what think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? You understand, he's using the exact wording of David's prayer in Psalms. He's using that specific wording to make his argument. You understand? In other words, if those words didn't matter, you couldn't make that argument. If David's words were not exactly what they were, that argument wouldn't hold. 
Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not as to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Paul is making the argument that the promise made to Abraham was not for the people of Israel. It was not the seeds of Abraham. It was to his seed. Now the interesting thing is, is that if you don't look at that argument, you may read Genesis about, which Brandon's going to get to in a few months. Not today. <laughs> anyway, right? Okay. <laughs> you might read that and think that the reference to seed is just referring to his progeny, right? His descendants. But that's not what it means. And Paul is telling us this in Galatians. Paul is saying, look, it said to his seed, the promise was made to his seed because it was a specific seed. Not all the people that came from Abraham. Look, I mean, that's kind of self-evident, isn't it? Did Abraham have just Isaac? He had Ishmael. Was Ishmael and the nations that came out of him heirs to the promises of God? They were not. They were not. So it certainly didn't mean to all of Abraham's offspring. Right? Didn't mean that. In both cases, the specific accuracy of the Scripture had to be correct in order for those statements to be made by Christ and by Paul. Had to be. It wasn't the concept. It wasn't the idea. It was the specific words used. So, verbal plenary inspiration mandates, think about this, Verbal plenary inspiration mandates that the translators must focus on the word as the basic unit of translation because it's the basic unit of inspiration. In other words, if you believe verbal plenary inspiration is true, if the scriptures evidence that to you, then you must believe that every word must be translated correctly. That it is not the thought, it is not the concept you understand? It's not those things. It is literally the exact wording that God gave to the author. You must believe that. All right. So now we move to its original writing. This is how the paragraph begins, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations being immediately inspired by God. So this is how it begins. Well, obviously, the Old Testament was originally, by the author, written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, we're not going to go down this path, but there is some great messages about particularly the New Testament and how the timing was perfect. God used the Roman Empire and their reach in the world, and they're taking the language of Greece, the previous rulers of the world who had been defeated, well, self-imploded, basically. But their language became common. Rome takes the language of the Greeks to the entire world that it conquers. A unique situation that would not have happened under Greece. Greece did not expand that far. It was really self-contained very smallly. If Christ had come during that time, that language would not, that message would not have been carried very far. It was the Roman Empire who established the Roman roads 
all over the empire. They established ports all over the world where they could take their goods to, where they could take their soldiers to, where they could take their style of living to. But they also gave us the opportunity to take the gospel to those same places, with those same roads, on those same ships, to that entirety of the developed world. Now, did we go to Antarctica? Well, as far as we know, no, but neither were there any people there. So, but how about Japan? China? Ooh, good questions. So was the entire world covered by the Roman Empire? No, no, but most of it, most of it at the time. Were there people in America at that time? I would argue there certainly were, yes. And they weren't all Indian, by the way, or indigenous Native Americans, by the way. Lots of architectural evidence for that. Vikings, Romans, before Romans, Phoenicians, Greeks, all in North America. The point is not that this time period allowed us to take the message to the entire earth as is easier today. It's that there was a huge expansion in the ability to spread the gospel rapidly. Once you got to the edge of the Roman Empire, it wasn't that much farther to go beyond that. We know of the gospel in the second century going to China. We know of it. Second century, gospels in China. Spread far. Spread far. We know that there's evidence that the first century gospel made it to America. How do we know? Because they found a tomb with Roman swords with crosses on them. Crosses. Hello? The Romans didn't put crosses on their, I don't know if you know this, they didn't put crosses on their swords. They didn't do that. That was a rabbit trail. Got a left turn right there. All right. But important to know that. that was, there's lots of great messages about that, the timing and everything else. But I'm pointing this out because you may actually ask the question, why Greek? Were the authors Jews? They were. So why didn't they write it in Hebrew? Why didn't they write it in Hebrew? Because that wasn't the language of the people. Did the Jews still speak Hebrew? They did. But most Jews were bilingual. They spoke Greek. They spoke Greek. And to tell you the truth, a lot of them spoke Aramaic. Yeah, we're, we're so smart today. We know, you know, English and Pig Latin. I okay, get two languages. The writings of the New Testament were inspired by God to be written in a language that could be understood throughout the whole world. This reflects the gospel message meant for both Jew and Gentile. See? Still, I could have got to that and then made the little deal about the world. At any rate, obviously, when we talk about the gospel, and you look at the majority of the books even in the New Testament, the letters from the apostles, who are they written to? Gentiles. They're written to Gentiles, Right? In all cases, the original writings were immediately inspired by God. Now, this is a clear statement that the original manuscripts were inspired, not the translations. So there are some who will say, 
trying to think if we're going to go down this path soon. No. There are some that will say that a particular translation was inspired. Okay? Now, let me give you a hint. There are some that will say that specifically about the KJV. They will say the KJV was inspired by God. God inspired the translators in the translation so that this is now a re-inspired word of God. Okay, well, the men who wrote the 1699 did not agree. The original autograph, the original writings were inspired, not translations. That is not taking away God's superintending care over translations. Not taking that away at all. It's just saying God inspired and revealed his word once. And that was in the original autographs. Okay, and Romans 3.2. You should have looked that one up already. That's footnote 14. All right. So now, the doctrine of providential preservation. Another sub-doctrine in our macro-doctrine of the Scriptures. All right, so we read this part right here, merely inspired by God. Then we add this part. And by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, and therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. So this is what we were just referring to, right? When we say that God inspired the original work the original autograph, the original writings of the books of the Bible, we are not saying that he didn't then make sure that that word continued to be available and was preserved for his church. In fact, the confession is saying that that absolutely was the case. Now, obviously, the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration of scriptures is only necessary if God was going to preserve them for his church. Right? Like, why would it matter if he gave the actual words of the Scripture if he's going to let the Scripture not actually exist for his church? It's going to be destroyed. It wouldn't matter, would it? Why would it matter? I mean, if you're not going to have access to it, why does it matter if it's the exact words? Right? It needed to be accessible to the church if it is actually God took the care to make sure that it's his words. By his singular care means... There's been a special care by God, specifically focused on preserving his word. Specifically focused on this. The special care to ensure that the scriptures are preserved is above and beyond the rest of creation. Let that soak in for a second. That's like five seconds. The special, the singular care is special because he preserved it above and beyond the rest of creation. In other words, God was directly involved with ensuring that his word was not destroyed. He did not leave it to the normal processes and machinations of creation. He specifically ensured both its preservation and availability. Now, let's not get confused because it's easy to kind of shift this discussion into a mode of, well, wait a minute. Isn't God sovereign? Isn't he in control of everything? He is. He is. 
But do you believe that God has established laws in creation that continue to operate? That God does not have to directly interdict in holding you to the earth. He has gravity. And gravity holds you to earth to the earth. Don't get me wrong. The scriptures do say that by God's spoken words, all things exist and continue to exist. You know what I think that is? It's the force that binds atoms together. Why? There's no explanation. They don't even have a theory of why atoms stick together and don't just burst apart. They have, they have a theory for that. Isn't that amazing? All our scientists and their big theories, they don't have a theory for how atoms stick together. None. Well, I know what it is. You know what it is, because the Bible says what it is. By his word, all things consist. They exist because of his word. And if his word isn't given, they don't exist. Gone. Kind of makes you wonder. Not about who's calling. But what it does make you wonder is, when the earth is and the universe is destroyed, which is prophesied, is it because he commands that it's destroyed? Is it because he commands it's destroyed, or is it because he withholds his word? I don't know. We don't need to know. Otherwise, the scriptures would tell us. He specifically ensured its preservation and its availability. In other words, God interdicted and ensured that his word continued to exist. If the scriptures are inspired, they must be preserved and available for Christ's church. One without the other is meaningless. We go back to paragraph one of the same chapter. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the fest, the malice of Satan and of the world. This is why God's word was preserved. It tells you not only what the gospel is, but it tells you what's going to happen. Why is there comfort in the gospel? Because you know what's going to happen when you die with the gospel, right? You know what promises are made to you through God's word. That should be a comfort to you. And isn't it? How, how can it not be a comfort to you as a believer? When daily life occurrences disappoint you and make you unhappy. How does the atheist live with no hope of a respite, no hope of things being right, no hope of joy and happiness? None. Well, some don't, do they? Even as they get to a level, a, rain, a place where the world thinks they're successful, the world thinks they're popular, the world thinks they kill themselves. Why? There's no joy. There's no hope. They see nothing. It's meaningless. And that weight comes on them. And they don't escape it. And sadly, many of them will spend eternity in hell. 
Not because they committed suicide, but because they weren't believers. If the scriptures were not preserved and available for Christ's church, what's the point? Now that, you know, that's really easy to accept and agree with and acknowledge. But when we start talking about translations and manuscripts, remember this. Because this makes all the difference. If there's a manuscript that wasn't available to the church for 1,800 years, and then suddenly it's found, and now that manuscript is the more authentic manuscript that we should all listen to. Do you see a problem? The church for 1,800 years didn't have this available? Really? That's why it makes a difference. That's why it matters. Enemies of God will attempt to corrupt his written word. Who is that? According to our confession, flesh, Satan, malice of the worlds, God's special care is required to thwart their attempts. Special revelation of scriptures needed to be in writing. Why? Orally passing on revelation could be easily corrupted over time. We've all played the telephone game at some time or another, right? But that's not even it. It's that you don't remember things the way exactly the way they were said. How many things can... Can you remember... Okay, somebody's going to be the hero husband here. Don't lie. Somebody's going to be the hero husband. Can you remember the first words you said to your wife when you got to the back of the church after you were married? I can't. Maybe, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> Do we have to stay for the reception? I don't know. Whatever it was, right, you don't necessarily remember. And then do you remember what you said to the, your best man before the ceremony began? Well, no. Was that an important time for you? It was a very important time, right? Now, you might say, well, what's the first word you said when your first child was born? You know, what did you say to your spouse the first time? Well, you might remember that. But do you remember what happened after that and all the words that were said after that? Well, you don't. Why? As time passes, memories fade. And even repeating things all the time sometimes becomes sketchy. Now, there is some legitimacy in important things being passed on, right? You might remember your dad or your mom telling you something when you were young. And it was, it was so important or it stuck with you so much that you still remember it and you still repeat it. And do you know why you repeat it? Because you remember it. I mean, because you repeat it. That's why. Right? You, re you remember it because you've repeated it. So we certainly believe that the apostles, and then the next generation after the apostles, their disciples, had a significant oral tradition of what Christ said. Even to the third generation. The church fathers wrote about this about how there was this oral tradition for additional information. That information did not supersede or was not treated equal with Scripture. Why? It was an oral tradition. They might not have remembered it exactly. But when the church started doing things in the first and second centuries, many of the things they did were based on the oral tradition from the apostles. How they conducted worship was based on the oral tradition of the apostles. What they did in baptism was based on the oral tradition of the apostles. I'm not talking about immersion. That was certainly in the scripture. But the words they said, 
the words that most churches that are being true to the scriptures still say, that was all according to that oral tradition. So we're not negating that, but as you can imagine, 2,000 years later, the oral tradition would be lost. So, obviously, it makes a lot more sense for that to be in writing. Right? Beat that one up enough? Okay. Written revelation could be preserved. Oral tradition could be lost. Written revelation could be preserved through thick or thin, whatever happens. If it's in writing, it's easier. You could hide it. You could transport it. That person dies, you still got it, right? It's in writing. Facilities, uh, sorry, facilitates accurate dispersion to the church. So now it's just like, well, he said this, but he said that. No, it's in writing. The church gets it. The church has an accurate explanation of what God's word is, right? Because it's in writing. All right, so we see these words in the confession. Kept pure. Well, that means nothing can be subtracted, which would distort, nor nothing can be added, which would corrupt. You take something away from scriptures, it's distorting the scriptures. You add something to the scriptures, you've corrupted the scriptures. The scriptures had to be kept pure. They are available for all ages. That's a benefit to, it's to benefit the church. There cannot be an age in which the church did not possess the scriptures in a pure form. If the scriptures that we had in the 1200s, were not the complete word of God. They were not pure. They were compromised. Then they weren't available to to Christ's church, were they? Can you see a problem there? You've got to live by this, but eh, you have a less than perfect copy. Now this is the big argument. When we talk about Westcott and Horde's work with Synaticus, Vaticanus, and all those other ones, the other one, When we look at those translations that came out of those, which, by the way, I'm going to show you, almost all translations today are based on their work. That manuscript, that Greek, was not available for 1,700 years. 1,700 years. So now to say that this thing that's found, one of them in the wastebasket of the Vatican, one of them in the burn pile, at a monastery in Sinai to say that those are the true word of God and that nothing else is the true word of God might have some problems. Authentic. Otherwise, the scriptures are good for nothing. Think about that. How could we know which words were or were not God's words? It either must be God's words or we can't trust it. In other words, you can't say, well, this one's okay, but it's like a 95% correct. Okay, wait a minute. How do we know for sure which 5% is incorrect? How do you know which 5% is incorrect? And how can we trust that any of it is correct, if some of it's incorrect? You with me on this? We have to believe that the entirety of God's word is true and correct in order to accept that any of it's true and correct. Otherwise, our flawed human intellect is making the decision. Scriptures were written so God's words are known and truly can be a comfort of the church. Without that surety, they are no more comfort than any other traditions. If they're not God's words, 
they're just as good as a poem. No insult meant to my daughter who studied creative writing. I'm just saying that there is no words of men that are as important if the scriptures are true. But if the scriptures are not trustworthy, then certainly they are just as good as any other human words. If the church is to appeal to them, they must be reliable. If corrupted, the church becomes ineffective. How can we base our beliefs, our stance, our orthopraxy, our orthodoxy, the way that we live our life, on anything that is not reliable? Now, we do trust unreliable things. Did you come in a car today? At some point, that car may break down. You cannot say that it's completely reliable. And you've all learned by now, even Calvin back there, that your human body is not completely reliable, is it? And the older you get, the more proof you receive. Your body will not always do what you want it to do. It will not always withstand what you want it to withstand. It will not always stay healthy and not get sick. There's some things you can count on, but not a lot. You say, well, all right, like what can we count on? I'd like to say gravity. Death and taxes. <laughs> That's probably true. You could definitely count on death. However, two people didn't experience it. Enoch and Elijah. Right? What about you? You're hoping for an Enoch deal? No, you're going to die. You can count on that. But pretty much everything else is not reliable. So where do we go? God's word. It is reliable. It needs to be reliable. For us to base any hope on it, to base any faith on it, it has to be reliable. If parts of the scriptures are invalid, then what can we trust and how do we know? We have nothing at all. So, when you see textual criticism or other things used to question parts of Scripture and say that, well, this isn't actually what it originally said, or this is incorrect word that's used here, or something like this, be wary. Because whoever said that has just bought into the idea that you can't trust the Scriptures. And you've got to be careful. I've seen great commentators make that statement. They're completely wrong. Completely wrong. Why? Because if you sow the seeds in people's minds that they can't trust that every word of Scripture is correct, then what you've sown in them is, is that they can't trust any of the words of Scripture. I mean, if it's got problems, then how can we trust it? This is the argument of the unbeliever. Is it not? Have you heard this? I don't want to surprise you with something new here, but you are going to hear this if you talk to unbelievers. I don't trust the Bible. Why? It's full of mistakes. It's full of errors. Heard this? Of course, I told you before the great comeback. They go, oh, you know what? I'm concerned about that. Can you show me a few? Well, they can never show you a few. But if you come across somebody who actually can show you some, and I've ran into one, then you've got to look at it exactly. And usually it's a matter of they didn't understand what something said. 
right? So when they went to a different passage and it said something that sounded different, they're like, see, it's just a mistake. It doesn't say the same thing, right? Like, for instance, well, what did the Jews think? The Messiah is going to come, and he is going to what? What do the Jews think the Messiah is going to do? What's the big thing he's going to come to do? He's going to come to... Which meant that he would... What? Overthrow Rome. It was like a general, right? The general king who's going to come in and make, take, take them right out. Most Jews could not see that that was not when he was going to come the first time. Or they couldn't even see that it was going to be twice. A lot of Jews thought it was once. And yes, there were some things in the Old Testament about him healing the sick and doing some things, but then, ba-boom. Right? And sometimes, you might actually see a movie or a show or something that will reflect that. It'll show some confusion in the Jews that are around the time of Christ. Right? Well, this can't be, he can't be the Messiah. He's not, he's not even raising an army. He's talking peace. So much of a concern, the Romans were concerned about it. They were concerned about everybody that they said could be the Messiah because they thought this is going to be somebody who's going to try to overthrow Roman rule. We have to trust the scriptures as being true. Do not get sucked into this thing of, well, this is not a good word. This is an incorrect translation. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Methods of its preservation. The Old Testament preservation has been, had been well established by the Jews. They were almost 100% Accurate copies all over Israel and eventually all over the world. Almost every ancient scroll that is found today still matches the modern text of these books completely. This is the Masoretic text we're talking about. This is still the case today. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found and the Dead Sea Scrolls matched. The Dead Sea Scrolls matched. Been hidden for over a thousand years and they matched. The Jews and their preservation of the scripture was very important. They took this seriously, that God's words were God's words, and when Christ went to the synagogue and quoted from the scroll, he didn't have to be worried that he had a good translation. He would have an exact copy. With the books of the New Testament and a dispersed church, there was a more urgent need for copies of both the Old and the New Testament. So, when the Jews are in Israel and the surrounding areas around Israel, right, the copies of the Old Testament were all very close to each other. But now as the churches are being established all over the Roman Empire, more copies of the Scripture are needed and they need to go to those places. They had to be more of them. There are over today 5,700 ancient copies of portions or entire books of the scriptures. 5,700. As new copies have been found, they are compared and discrepancies are dealt with. The general process is called textual criticism. That's the general process. Now that's, 
not just limited to the scripture. Textual criticism is an intellectual process that's used for the text of any writings, right? So if somebody finds an ancient copy of the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, or, you know, Aristotle works, Plato works, you name it. They find some ancient copy of this, right? They're going to use textual criticism to compare that against what they believe the original said or what they at least have held the original said to compare the two. Are you with me on this? By the way, maybe you know it because I've said it before, so we'll see. Anybody remembers this? How many ancient copies are there of significant portions of the Odyssey? We have a nine. Anybody else? Two. Two copies. There are less than ten sections, portions. Two. The accuracy of the Odyssey is not questioned. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? 5,700 copies of portions of Scripture. Yet, two copies of the Odyssey. But the question of the Odyssey isn't even a question. See this? You think maybe that there's some purposeful questioning of the Scripture? Copying methods employed. Well, New Testament books and letters were copied by individuals in local churches and were passed on passed to other churches. We know that this happened. This resulted in widespread dissemination in only a few years. So a church would receive a copy of the scripture, of a book or a letter. They would then make copies of that and send it on to other churches. They'd make their copy and send it on, the original. Now, what would happen to the original eventually? It would disintegrate. It come apart, right? It's handled, it's transported, it's being used. And we're not talking about like our books and the paper products that we use today, which lasts a long time. I mean, does anybody have an old book? More than 100 years? More than 200 years? More than 300 years? Do you believe that such books exist? Okay, if you don't, come to my house. I got 300-year-old books. The paper's still intact. You can still read it, as long as you speak Latin. No, it's in English. But you understand, the point is, is that our paper and the printing now lasts for much longer than the papyrus and the parchment that they were written on originally. Those materials came apart. They came apart. Copying methods included, here's this methods of copying methods could include, copying individually when they saw the writings like this, a scriptorium or a bookmaker, which had a lectern of 20 to 40 scribes. Now, how did that work? Well, you, in a scriptorium, they would have somebody up front, and they would say the word, and the scribes would write the word. Then they would say the next word. The scribes would write the next word. Then they would say the next word. The scribes would write the next word. They would say the punctuation. The scribes, 20 to 40 people, they would also, it's like a copy machine, <laughs> right? It's like you're going to make 40 copies at once instead of one copy, right? He's going to dictate it. 40 people are all writing at the same time. Now, how could they do that? Well, because then they sold them. Then they would sell it, right? And then monasteries. And you've all probably seen ideas of what happened at monasteries, where they, it was one-to-one -one copying, right? And they, 
the monks in the monasteries would work on a book or a chapter. It's not like they said, okay, well, you have Isaiah. We'll see you in a couple years. No, it wasn't like that. It was like, okay, you have Isaiah 1, you have Isaiah 2, you have Isaiah 3, you have Isaiah 4, you have Isaiah 5, right? And then whoever is in charge would actually go back and check word for word to make sure it was correct. See this? Why? It's God's word. They treated it very importantly. They wanted to make sure that this was accurate, this is correct, that this was right, that there wasn't some kind of problem, that they didn't mess up. Now we have to stop. Man, this is exciting stuff, isn't it? All right, so we'll stop right here talking about papyrus and everything, and we'll pick that back up next time. Let's close in a word of prayer.